Good Reflections, Deepening a Christian Spirituality for Today. In this, the third podcast of the Moot Lent course, Vanessa Elson explores the thoughts that distort and the thoughts that bring you life in personal transformation. Actually, I wanted to share something. My discipline tonight is I've got to talk in ten minutes which is quite hard, and uh, I really wanted, I, I went away and I thought, you know, last week we looked at that saying of Jesus about going through the small gate and the narrow road, and I went and I thought about our responses and questions, and I, had a, I thought I had a bit of an insight, but the trouble is I haven't got time to share it with you. <laughs> so what I thought I'd do was, if Ian lets me, is I might do a podcast extra. So if you want to listen to my insight, <laughs> you can go onto the Moot website and you can get the podcast extra. But I, I haven't got time or I won't, I won't do this talk in 10 minutes. So that's my, that's my way around the discipline. Um, so in a sense, I'm going to slightly change the focus because I've called this week um, a, the attention of the heart. But I will come back to discipline at the end. But I want us to consider tonight, particularly think about the heart. And when I say the heart... I'm not just talking about the feelings or emotions that are immediately within reach, but I guess I'm talking about the heart in terms of our inmost, deepest, or truest self. And I guess that's the part of us that's crucial in any real change because it's the seat of our most profound desires and longings. In a sense, the heart, I think, is the center of our being because it's the center of our love. And ultimately, our actions reflect what we really love, the what or who we're really attracted to. And here lies the dilemma, because somehow we sometimes seem to be attracted to what will harm us rather than what does us good. So I think we have to attend to our hearts, because this is the deepest way of knowing. Um, In our culture, we are overly focused on knowing through the rational and intellectual. And I think we're impoverished through knowing, through intuition, the emotional, the feeling, the spiritual. It's what Richard Rohr calls the transrational. I thought I'd read you a quote from John O'Donoghue, um, where he talks about the heart, because I think he says it really beautifully, and I can't say it any better. So this is what he says about the heart. The human body is an amazing masterpiece With the senses we see, hear, taste, smell, and touch the world, drawing its mystery inside us. With the mind, we probe the eternal structures of things. With the face, we present ourselves to the world and recognize each other. But it is the heart that makes us human. The heart is where the beauty of the human spirit comes alive. Without the heart, the human would be sinister. To be able to feel is the great gift. When you feel for someone, you become united with that person in an intimate way. Your concern and compassion comes alive, drawing some of the other person's world and spirit into yours. Feeling is the secret bridge that penetrates solitude and isolation. Without the ability to feel, friendship and love could never be born. All feeling is born in the heart. This makes the human heart the true jewel of the world. Facing outwards, The senses are an ever-new conversation with what surrounds us. Facing possibility, the mind is in restless thought flow. Concealed within the dark, the heart is concerned with who we are. 
It is ever attentive to how we feel. It senses and feels where the care, the joy, the fear, and the tenderness reside. Always and at every point, the heart remembers who we are. Though so much else is in motion in the mind and in the senses, the hidden heart never loses sight of us. If we ever feel lost or overwhelmed, all we have to do is become still and listen to our heart, and we'll soon find exactly where we are. Because the mind is always engaged with whatever is happening now, it often forgets who we are. The heart never forgets. Everything of significance is inscribed there. The heart is the archive of all our intimate memory. What is truly felt leaves the deepest inscription. Each of us carries the book of our life inside our hearts. Often at night when we dream, we're surprised at how clearly versions of long-forgotten events return with strange clarity. Though we live much of our lives outside, in action and engagement with the world, the deeper impact of what happens is registered in the narrative of the heart. So I think it's because our hearts carry this narrative, this life memory, that what happens is some of that means that we become slightly distorted. And what I mean by that is that because our heart carries all those memories, and some of those memories are painful or difficult, in a way that then affects the relationship between our intentions and our actions. And because everything is kind of goes through the heart, that relationship's no longer quite true and straight. It's what someone said, actually. We start to find we don't always do what we want to do. It's what St. Paul describes in the letter to Romans in the New Testament, where he says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So when we think about the heart, we enter the territory of addiction, compulsion, patterns of behavior and responses that we struggle to break. Why are we attracted to or repulsed from certain people and things? We're a mixture of the things that give us life, but also the things that distort us. And this needs untangling. So I think that in the matters of the heart, it's not the road of suppression or repression that sets us free, but it's the road of gently, and I think it needs to be gentle, untangling ourselves and our desires, a sorting and sifting of those things that bring us life and those things that actually imprison and harm us, of allowing ourselves to be untangled because it's not something we can just do by ourselves. The seven deadly sins is an old way of talking about the kind of behavior that happens when our hearts are tangled up and our desires are distorted in a way that takes us beyond being healthy and in balance to unhealthy and out of balance. These distorted desires are what separate us from our true selves, from others, and from God. They're the seven common forms of egoism, of a self-centered human consciousness what some have called the false rather than the true self. We don't seem to be able to become truly free and fully human when everything in our inner and outer worlds revolves around us and what we want. The false self is, in a sense, this selfish self, and this self can be a hard and ruthless taskmaster, one which we seem unable to satisfy.
But we are trapped because who can free themselves from themselves? We need help. We need someone else to free us from ourselves, to begin to untangle us. Um, I've done a, another little paraphrase of one of the Beatitudes, which is that only the untangled can see God. So what I'm going to so coming back to discipline, I do think that the, that the practice of descending into the heart and standing almost sort of naked before God with the mind in the heart, this is an ancient um, contemplative Christian practice. But I think it's a key practice if we want to get untangled. I don't think it can happen if we don't participate in this practice. And I think it's also this practice that, above all, nurtures and restores the heart down to its hidden and unknown depths. It's only here that deep calls to deep. I think we have to learn to become present because we've forgotten how. And this is what contemplation is, in essence. It's learning to become fully present. I just want to read another brief quote from Cynthia, I think it's Bourgeau, from her book, in Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening. This is what she says. The reality is that God is always present, and we're the ones who are absent. We hide in the cataphatic, don't worry if you don't understand that word. <laughs> she explains it. In our noise, our stories, our self-talking, our busyness. Silence is useful in that it takes away the evasions. It forces us to befriend our own unconsciousness and stop running from our own shadows. Once that willingness has been found, the willingness simply to endure ourselves in the present moment, then the external conditions of silence become less important. I've seen someone do centering prayer in the middle of an airline terminal. On the other hand, Without that consent to fully inhabit ourselves, even silence itself will soon get piled high with rules, self-definitions, rigidity, and piety. It becomes itself a form of evasion. What in most people begins as an attraction to silence is really at root a desire to end the evasion. Like the character Gerd in the novel A Wizard of Earthsea, silence heralds the dawning inner recognition that the thing you've been running from all your life is really you you have to turn and embrace it. That fundamental turn is what contemplative life is built on and what silence celebrates and honors, the realization that who and what you are can neither be exhausted nor fulfilled in that endless cycle of doing, running, desiring, and demanding. As Jesus taught so long ago, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And then in a little bit later on, she says, so she, she describes contemplative prayer as like showing up. <laughs> so she says, but the promise contemplative prayer makes is that if you show up, things will start to change. Not in the way you expect, of course, but change they will. So I guess what I'm saying is that both discipline and desire can somehow work together. And the final thing I want to say um, is partly in a response to last week, but it also feeds into the next part of tonight. Because we're focused on the heart, I want to give a good bit of time to non-rational, a feeling and intuitive way of knowing. And in this church, there are three aisles, and I've laid out three um, versions of the same thing. It's a version of the Stations of the Cross by artist and priest Adam Bolter, where the journey of Jesus to the cross and beyond has been interpreted through, for images and photographs. 
And we will do a bit of an exercise, but after that you'll see they start on the left of every aisle and then they come down on the right. So every aisle you start on the left and then come down to the right. But the, part of the reason why I've done this, I want to pick up on something else that was expressed last week. And it's this experience of feeling abandoned by God, that God isn't there for us, that we can't see or feel God, or the fear that there's nothing there. There's only a huge void and absence. And I think it's really important, particularly in the church, that we do not deny the reality of this experience, that we don't try to easily explain or dismiss it, because it's real for those who are in it. But it's also at the heart of the Christian experience and story. Because Jesus' cry on the cross, which came from his heart, was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt abandoned by God. The most central and defining presence, the love relationship of his life, was seemingly withdrawn in a personal moment of absolute crisis and agony at all levels. And I think there's something very profound in Christ's willing journey to go to the cross, to endure it, that can speak to the depths of our human experience. So before we do that, I'm going to give you a good sort of 15 to 20 minutes to meditate on those images or just look at them. But I thought, first of all, we'd do a little bit of exercise to help us to become present. So what I need you to do is just get, perhaps put your chairs back a little bit and um, become comfortable. Thank you for listening to this Moot Reflection. For more information on our events, resources and community, please go to www.moot.uk.net.